Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Lord, we pray that you would fill us indeed with hope, that you would bring into order our unruly wills, sinners as we are, and redirect our affections and our desires to love what you command and desire what you promise, all pointing to what St. Paul talked about, this, this glorious end, this resurrection from the dead. We pray this in your Son's name and in your love and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening. Welcome. This is the fifth Sunday in Lent. It's almost over. The torture's almost done. You can do whatever that you weren't doing or not do whatever you weren't not doing or whatever it is. Yeah, doesn't that make sense? I'm a really good communicator. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which begins Holy Week, and Holy Week begins in earnest our walk towards the cross. Don't forget, Holy Week, we have a card somewhere. Uh, pick one up for you or for a friend. Holy Week uh, starts with Palm Sunday right here. We'll have morning prayer Wednesday morning right here. Then on Thursday is Maundy Thursday. Our Maundy Thursday service will be at White Rock Fellowship. Our friends over there at White Rock Fellowship will allow us to meet in their space. So kind. And then Good Friday right here at noon and then Easter Day at 5 p.m. Lent is a strange time, isn't it? It's in a strange time of year. I don't know if you knew this, but Lent comes from the Middle English word for springtime. Hmm. Neat tidbit, Jay. And spring is interesting because you see a lot of the trees blooming. Maybe you've seen on your car the pollen. Maybe your allergies have been experiencing the pollen. And you've just been coughing and hacking and sniffing and taking Zyrtec and whatnot. But this is a season of new beginnings. It's, it's kind of a gate season, a, a Janus, if you will. There's, there's something that looks back. We look back to Jesus walking through the wilderness and, and being tempted and all these things. But we also look forward to the result of his passion and crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me because... We, we sang just earlier that song about the Holy Spirit and your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. And when we think of the word glory, there's all sorts of connotations that we could have with it. We could have the Hebrew word kabod, which is like means the weight of God. But for the gospel of John, in John's gospel, the glory of God, the, the glory of Jesus meant the glory of his crucifixion, the glory of his death, this mystical thing. So it's fitting that this death would bring what? New life. That the end of something, the self-giving, the self-emptying of our Lord Jesus Christ brings newness. It brings a, a spring, 
if you will. But the springtime, we know, is not the end of the season of growth because we got to move on to summer when it's so hot and it's so humid and the mosquitoes are endless. But it's fitting that in this next to last Sunday in the season of Lent, we hear Isaiah talk about, behold, didn't you know that I declared this to you? I am doing a new thing, says the Lord your God. What is the new thing? Well, the new thing is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus. The new thing is that no longer will people tell each other, know and love the Lord, as Jeremiah writes, but the law of the Lord will be written on their hearts and God will take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. There's a new covenant and a new reality happening and that new thing looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. A new heavens and a new earth that we long for. Whenever Paul writes about longing to attain the resurrection from the dead, he's not just talking about him as an individual one day being able to be not dead anymore and not undead, but to be raised to life in glory like Jesus. St. John writes, when we see him, Jesus, when he returns, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be glorified. We will be resurrected. So everything that we hear tonight, hear it in the context of this new thing that God is doing. And it's not new to us, is it? It's not like 2019 new, like, oh, Lyft had an IPO. And that's new. That's a brand new thing. Or what's the next new technology thing? This is a very, very old thing, but it's becoming new. It's bringing renewal to all of creation. And so the season of Lent is very important, friends. That's why we take away stuff from ourselves. So we can hold the reality of who we are, the unruly unruly wills and affections of sinners, with the reality of who God wants us to be. This full humanity made in the image and likeness of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, so that we can love him, so that we can believe in him, so that we can trust in him. Now, couched in the context of Jesus' coming death is a picture of two disciples. Two disciples. One disciple has position, authority, answers, and an agenda. So this disciple seemingly has it all, if you will. If you're looking for somebody who's got their stuff together, this disciple's got it. Position, authority, answers, and an agenda. But there's another disciple in this picture that emerges that has no position and no authority, but there's some answers and there's some agenda there as well. And in this picture, and again, it's couched in the context of Jesus' death, we're going to see a relief emerge. Now, why do I say couched in the context of Jesus' coming death? Because it says right there in John 12, 1, that six days before the Passover, so it's Saturday night, it's the end of Sabbath probably. Have you ever been in a Jewish city or Jewish town, Jewish country at the end of Sabbath? It's exciting. Everybody's been in their house. They've been observing Shabbat. They've been resting. They've been eating cold food. Gefilte fish keeps coming to my mind. I don't know if that's actually something that they would eat. But they've been observing this time of rest. And then when the sun goes down on Saturday, boom, Sabbath is over. 
People are coming out. I'll never forget being in Jerusalem and walking through this market, uh, not in the old city, but just kind of the, the urban area of Jerusalem. And as soon as the sun went down, people flooded to this market. And there were kids everywhere and adults everywhere and everybody's doing their shopping and it's just a party. And that's the sense here at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. There's this great end of Sabbath party. But Jesus is where? He's in Bethany. Now there are two Bethanies in the Bible. One is out past the Jordan, probably in Nowheresville where tumbleweeds fly across the main street. But there's another Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives and that's where he is now and it's close to the city of Jerusalem. And what does Jerusalem represent for Jesus in this stage of his life and ministry? Death. Glory, yes. The commencement of this new beginning, yes, but it represents death. And we're six days away from it because Jesus will be killed on the Passover. In that context, we have two disciples. The first one is a guy named Judas. None of us like him. None of us want to be like him. So it's easy prey for me to pick on Judas. But notice Judas as a disciple. What does he have? Well, first of all, he has position. How does John describe him? Look at verse 4 there in John 12. Well, gosh, he, he was one of his disciples. He was one of the 12. Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, Bartholomew. And Judas is usually mentioned last. There's two Judases. Judas Iscariot is usually mentioned last. But he had a position. Now learn the implied lesson here. Just because someone has position does not make them trustworthy. Just because someone has position does not make them godly. He has position. What does he also have? He has authority. What's his authority? What's his job? Well, he has charge of the money bag. Verse 6. Now, John puts in his little, his little thoughts. It's, he had charge of the money bag because he liked to take money out of the money bag. Nevertheless, he had position, he had authority, he had say of what happened to the money, but he also had answers. I'm trying to paint Judas as like the Christian you don't want to be. Are you following me here? Judas had the answers because there was a, a moment that we're going to talk about in more detail, but this woman Mary expresses love for God, love for Jesus in a very lavish way, and Judas has something to say about that. He has an opinion. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, probably voicing an opinion that everybody else in that end of Sabbath party dinner had. Hey, what's going on with this lady? Why was this ointment used in this way? This could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, for a day laborer in this time, that was about a year's worth of salary. Denarius was a day's wages. And if you take out Sabbaths and holy days, about 300 days wages, that's about a year. Judas has a point, doesn't he? He really does have the answers. Wow, thanks, Judas. This could be sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. But we see that John adds his... His commentary. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. So Judas has position, he has authority, he has an answer to respond to this 
this expression of love, and he has an agenda. If we think about our own lives and the old, our own positions that we have in relationship to Jesus, what answers do we have? What authority do we have in light of him? And really, what agendas do we bring to his presence? Judas, one commentator, trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, Judas may be being a Jew in the sense of trying to protect the kingdom of God from this crazy man, Jesus, who was saying the Son of Man must die and on the third day be raised again, etc., etc. Judas may have been trying to protect the kingdom of Israel by betraying Jesus. But we know what Judas' agenda was, and it was betrayal. He's going to hand Jesus over. But there is another disciple who's not called a disciple. She's not one of the 12. She has no position. But she's there. She's a friend of Jesus. Jesus likes to frequent this town. And just a, a chapter before, Jesus has raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She has no position. Moreover, she has no authority. She has no voice, A, in this society, and B, in this conversation or in this party that's happening. But what's consistent about Mary? What else do we know about Mary? That she is the one that would sit at Jesus' feet. When her sister Martha was freaking out about uh, cooking and cleaning and being very anxious, being a highly anxious presence, Jesus says, Martha, shh. Mary has chosen the better part. She doesn't need to get up and clean with you. She's chosen the better part, and it's not going to be taken from her. So Mary, no position, no authority, but always the learner. Always listening. Always abiding. She has her own set of answers. When life throws something at her, what does she do? She goes to her Lord. She sits at his feet. She knows how to respond. And she also has an agenda. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. This would have been from northern India. And it would have been about 12 ounces. Commentators say it's like when you go to the nice coffee shop and you think you're buying an, a whole pound of their nice, almost $20 coffee, but it's really 12 ounces. The same kind of thing here. She takes this pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of, fragrance of the perfume. Mary expresses a deeply loving, a, a lavishing gesture to Jesus. And I love how John breaks it up. The fragrance, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. To everyone present, this would have been scandalizing. A, that she touched Jesus. B, that she even took her hair down. Because for, for a Jewish woman at this time, her hair needed to be up, not down. For her to take her hair down and to put this ointment on his feet and then to take her hair, crossing some boundaries here, and to wipe it into his feet with her hair. 
it would have been scandalizing to everyone there. But Jesus, knowing her heart, knowing her mind, calms everyone down. He says in verse 7, leave her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. So Mary does something that's scandalizing. But somehow she, she knows what's coming. She knows of the, the death of Jesus. She knows what's ahead for her Lord. This one at whose feet she sits. This one that she loves. And she lavishes love on him. So with Judas and Mary, we have two very different sorts of disciples. One who's official, capital D, disciple. Always wanted to be one of those. And one who's not official. One whose trajectory is very much this direction. Very much towards betrayal. And one whose trajectory is this direction. One who will stay by Jesus. One who will help in just a few days, prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Whereas in just a few days, Judas will have killed himself out of madness and grief, anger, and self-loathing. So what is the answer to the question that Judas and Mary's juxtaposition presents us with? Don't be like Judas? Well, <laughs> that's a good start. You shouldn't be like Judas. But I think it goes deeper than that. St. Paul gives us more than a clue when he puts the focus completely and totally on Christ. St. Paul takes the focus off of ancillary things. We regard no one any longer according to the flesh, he says. And he puts the focus all on Jesus, all on relationship to Jesus. Look at Philippians 3, 9 and 10. All Paul wants to do is to be found in Christ. He says, I count everything as lost, not having a righteousness of my own that is gained from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So when we look at Judas and we look at Mary, we don't really know how to reconcile things. We know one chose very poorly and one chose strangely, but still it was honored and beautiful to God. And Paul helps us bring this into clarity. He helps us answer the question, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus today? What does it look like to be one who's living into that new creation, the new heavens and the new earth? Paul says that he counts all the things that he had gained as loss. Now, he's talking about his own Jewish heritage. How he was, let me just read it to you. This, this is in verse 5. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was, I don't know, if, I don't know what his Enneagram number, but I'm guessing he's a three because he's showing us how awesome he is. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of these things, Paul says, and uh, theologian Tom Wright says, it's like Paul's creating a ledger here. These were all counted as credits to his account. Boom! Circumcised on the eighth day. Boom of the people of Israel. Boom of the tribe of Benjamin. Boom, boom, boom. Goes on and on and on. So Paul has all this credit to him. 
But he says, but whatever I thought I had counted as gain, I take it from the credit column and I move it over to the debit column. And then later he says, no, it's not even in the debit column. I put it in the trash can. This is refuse, Paul says. This is rubbish because I have gained Christ. And we realize when we see Judas and Mary, it all has to do with the relationship that they had with Jesus. When we look at our lives in the season of Lent and we think, ah, I'm not doing well or whatever it is, we think about what is our relationship to Christ? Who do we love? Who do we trust? In whom do we believe? And this righteousness, what pathway does it put us on? What trajectory does it send us down? Look at verse 10 of Philippians 3. Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now hold on here. Everything was going really nicely. We're going to believe in God. We're going to trust Christ. We're going to take all these good things of being a good Jew. We're going to call, count him as rubbish. We're going to put him away over here because we gain Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Out of boy, we're still going that I may share with him in his sufferings. And we remember that Jesus says, if anyone is going to come after me, if anyone is going to follow me, he must do what? He's got to take up his cross and follow me. If anyone wants to save his life, he must lose it. We must deny ourselves. And we find out that this path of righteousness, this moving towards the new heavens and the new earth, this being like Mary who took 300 denarii worth of ointment has to have the same kind of self-emptying. What some people would call squandering or wasting. Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me, to be my disciple. This is what it means to live in this life of Lent in the season of Lent, but it doesn't end in death. It doesn't end on Good Friday. It doesn't end with blackness and darkness and void in the abyss. Because Sunday is right around the corner. Hmm. For you in this season of Lent, I want to ask you three questions. And I want to give you three answers but still answer them in your own way. The first is this. Have you seen your trajectory in Lent? Have you allowed yourself to have the sort of self-knowledge that you see, oh, okay, so when, when I don't have this and this, a little bit of, of who I am is revealed. And is your path of discipleship of following Jesus, is it more like Mary or more like Judas? Now, I'm not saying that any of us are going to betray Jesus, etc. But remember, Judas relied on position, on the authority, on the answers, and eventually his agenda won the day, and, and he reaped the benefits of that in his own self-annihilation. Or is it more like Mary where what seems to be a squandering, what seems to be this pouring out really is this lavish expression of love. And here's my answer when you ask yourself this question, am I more like Judas or Mary in my trajectory of discipleship? 
I feel like the Lord says to us in this moment, love me like Mary loved me. Can you hear that? Love me like Mary loved me. Second question. Are you willing to go with Jesus to these places and times of death? For instance, like Bethany, six days before the Passover, eventually to Jerusalem. Or in Paul's words, are we willing to share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death? Are we willing to do that in this season of Lent? And I feel like the Lord says to us, trust me. Trust me. Remember, we asked the question last week with the parable of the prodigal son, is God good? Is he trustworthy? The Lord says this week, trust me. For your good, for your family's good, trust me. Just like this guy Paul trusted me. And lastly, do you prize above all else, do we prize above all else, the resurrection from the dead? That new heaven and new earth, the way that God is going to completely vindicate all wrongs that have been committed, where he will completely heal all who have been bruised and wounded. Do we long to be with God and his people forever? And as the old prayer book says, and unto ages of ages, amen. And I feel like the Lord says here, believe in me. Believe that there is purpose. Believe that there is direction. Believe that as you lavish your love on me, as this is seemingly squandered, as you deny yourself, that I am calling you to myself. And remember, this springtime, this season of Lent is just a season. This life that we live, friends, is just a vapor. In this world, our Lord Jesus says, is passing away. But he will never pass away. And he will never leave us or abandon us. And he is calling us to himself. Let us pray. Hmm. Father, we, we beg of you to help us trust in you. Help us believe in you. And help us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, supremely, beautifully, and humbly in this season of Lent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.